Hello, and welcome to the Legion Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mann. In this episode, I'll be discussing the Legion of Superheroes from DC Comics. This is Legion Spotlight number 18, and we're continuing our look at the Legion of Superhero stories, and we're in early 1964. Next up, from Action Comics number 309, is the Superman Super Spectacular. Now, this is written by Edmund Hamilton. We've got art by Kurt Swan. This is from February 1964. It's a 14-page story. One of those is a full-page interior cover. And this is one of those kind of solve-the-story stories where the question here is who's posing as Clark Kent because Superman is the focus of the Our American Heroes show and they've gone to great lengths to surprise him with you know a live recording of this. And both Lana and Lois are there. Both suspect Superman of being Clark Kent. Clark's one of the invited guests on the show because it's a, you know, almost a this-is-your-life sort of a thing. And Lois and Lana have a device that detects electronic equipment because they know if Superman is indeed Clark, he'll have one of his robots pose as Clark. So that rules that out. And then the rest of the story is the the show is being filmed or whatnot or televised is kind of, well, this guest can't be it because, you know, well, Batman's here and he can't be in two places at once either. You know, we've got Pete Ross there. They acknowledge Pete knows Superman is Clark, but Pete thinks... Superman's got it covered, he'll just have one of the robots showing up, because he doesn't know what's going on with Lana and Lois. And the Legion connection is Saturn Girl, Chameleon Boy, and Element Lad of the Legion. They show up when Jimmy is there with members of the Jimmy Olsen fan club, one of which has a gift for Superman, and it's like, hey, I've got this gold that my father found in the sea and such, and we want to give it to you so you can contribute it to your favorite charity. Well, it's in a lead box, which is good, and he did that so the X-ray vision wouldn't spoil the surprise, but it turns out it's gold kryptonite, and Element Lad is there to kind of turn it, I guess he turns it into platinum. Now, why platinum and not gold? I don't know, but that way it doesn't rob Superman of his powers, and there's still a donation for the charity and such. Now, the really, Element Lad, Sangirl, and Chameleon Boy are the ones who show up most on really just the one page, but when they first show up, we've also got Bouncing Boy... It looks like Triplicate Girl, Sun Boy, Colossal Boy, Invisible Kid, and Lightning Lass. Why we don't have Lightning Lad and Cosmic Boy, I don't know. And this is actually a little bit different of a layout of the time bubble, because it's got everybody standing, and there's like a console around the edge of the time bubble. And it's weird, because it's like Element Lad kind of sticks his hand out. It looks almost like through the time bubble. But anyways... They're there because it's like, oh, I can use Chameleon Boy to change into Clark Kent and come back. But the Legion gets called back to their time, so that can't be done. I mean, the whole thing is a matter of pose the question, rule out the obvious choices, and then when Clark does show up, there's the question of who can it be? And the final two panels kind of reveal who Superman trusted with his secret identity and who's posing as Clark Kent. And again, this was very much kind of a game with the readers to see, can you figure it out before we reveal it? To the point 
that at the top of that last page on the second panel, they, they directly address the reader, you know, if Superman hasn't used a robot or Batman or Pete Ross, you know, how can Clark Kent be there? You know, here's the question, can you solve it? Are you keeping up, etc.? Are you keeping up? Because it's not like it's a fair play story. I mean, the person that poses as Clark was in the story earlier, but kind of tangentially. And having that person kind of literally in shadow when they first appear and then blatantly at the end was kind of weird. And also dates the story in a very interesting way that just wouldn't work at at various other time periods. But again, it's a Legion story. They make a cameo appearance just to rule out Chameleon Boy or really any of the other Legionnaires from posing as Clark Kent and such. The funny thing is, we've had a number of other lookalikes for Clark Kent that could have been used, although I don't know if Superman should have trusted them. So, I mean, this was as good a story as any. But uh, very tangential to the Legion. I just figured I'd cover it because it is something of a classic story because of the the guest star who poses as Clark, and I don't want to spoil that if you don't know what it is. Anyways, that's the Superman Super Spectacular from Action Comics 309. And real quick, also in Action Comics number 309 is the Statement of Ownership, Management, and Circulation. The information or the data filing is October 1st, 1963 for Action Comics. At this point, there is no sales data. In later years, we should have that, or we will have that, up until like the mid-80s when DC kind of switched how they were shipping the subscription copies and whatnot, at which point they no longer had to do this, which is, I think, part of why they switched it. Anyways, I just thought I'd toss it in there. I'm going to mention where other ones have the statement of ownership and management, where I know about them. Hopefully, we'll have some good sales data or print run data and stuff, as well as sales data when we get a few more years down the line. So once again, that's the Statement of Ownership, Management, and Circulation from Action Comics, number 309. Next up from Adventure Comics, number 318, is The Mutiny of the Legionnaires. And I'm going to do part one. I'll do part two. Actually, once I've read that, I'm trying to do these in smaller chunks. Anyways, it's a total of an 18-page story across the two parts. Edmund Hamilton writing, John Forte on the art, March 1964. We're going to cover the first nine pages, part one. It's got a two-third page interior cover that kind of previews what's coming later. And the story starts out with Cosmic Boy and Sun Boy coming back from a mission in a small shuttlecraft rocket thing, and Sun Boy complaining of just how tired he is. They get called to the world of Zen, X-E-N-N, which is about to explode. Now, about to explode means they've got a couple of weeks some kind of atomic reaction started on their planet. It sounds actually a little like the whole bit with Krypton. And these guys are blue skin, really huge eyes, and everybody pretty much looks alike, dresses alike, so a very homogenous alien race, as honestly is not that uncommon. Cosmic Boy and some boy, it's like, oh, we'll just take you to Earth. It's like, well, we need to have an atmosphere that's got a high percentage of xenon in it. Now, I found that interesting because it's like, okay, they can find a world with that and they say as much. But Sunboy and Cosmic Boy aren't wearing any kind of breathing apparatus or anything. Now, I'm wondering if in part two, there's going to be a reveal of... Because Sunboy starts acting odd, and I'll get to that in a minute. But if this goes back to Cosmic Boy's helmet in his first appearance, if he comes from a world that had maybe a lot of xenon on it or something like that, and he can breathe Earth air just fine, 
well, these guys can't. I'm curious if that plays into it or not. But after this point, Sunboy was already just tired. He starts getting a little more tense, a little more impatient, and as the story goes on, a little more basically insane. Now, they get back to Earth. It's like, let's call the Science Council. Let's figure out what to do. But where are Superboy, Monel, and Ultra Boy? Now, at this point, it's kind of seeming like maybe Sunboy is the leader of the Legion. Maybe not. Last I looked, I thought it was Saturn Girl, but they never very clearly establish all of that stuff. At the very least, Sunboy is taking ownership of getting these guys off the planet because he said he'd do it. Now, Ultra Boy, Saturn Girl, and Colossal Boy, and others are off across space on a mission. Superboy and Monel are taking another crack at the Iron Curtain of Time. We get a one panel of that, of them kind of, you know, shoulder ramming into this barrier in the time stream. And we actually not only get a mention of the Time Trapper with a dash between the two, which is not how it's later referred to, but we actually see the robe, the cowl, the shadowed face, and stuff like that. Now, it's all in purple, but we're in the time stream, and frankly, a lot of the time stream seems purple at this point. But this is the actual first visual appearance of the Time Trapper. Now, as far as Part 1 goes, that's all we see of Superboy and Monel. We hear about them later. The Science Council says, yep, we'll help. We'll supply a space arc with a robot crew. We'll hand it off to you, some boy. You can lead this expedition. And they've got to go find a world that has a xenon-bearing atmosphere, which are all kind of far away from the planet Xen, but it's like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll make it. Don't worry. Now, the layout of this space arc is kind of wild. It looks kind of like a flat, ovalish thing with two rockets out the end and these big space fins along the side. But then there is this circular dome thing about two-thirds of the way back that's the bridge deck or whatever. And based on the scale of this, I don't see how it's going to hold the, what did they say, the few thousands of the, the Xenons, or Xenians, or however you would pronounce that. It doesn't look big enough for that, given how big the Legionnaires are relative to the ship and kind of the scale of that command deck with its glass dome and whatnot. It does feel like 60s sci-fi design, though, which is accurate because it's a sci-fi design in the 60s, so go figure. And Sunboy is acting very much like a taskmaster at this point. And we get an introduction to the various robots. We've got red ones for, you know, they're extra strong for carrying the cargo. The green robots are deckhands and uh, appropriately have an extra set of hands on the ends of the arm, which is kind of weird. We've got yellow ones that seem to be the flight control crew, although they're not really mentioned as such. And then there are black ones who are handling all the the engineering services and whatnot. And we get a, a bunch of Legionnaires going off on this mission, obviously Sunboy, Cosmic Boy, Lightning Lad. We also get Tripica Girl, Starboy, and Light Lass, and Matter Eater Lad. Now, what's kind of interesting on this is Light Lass is still wearing her Lightning Lass costume, complete with the lightning bolts. And again, she doesn't look like a dead ringer for Lightning Lad like she was when he, she first appeared as him, which is kind of weird. But they get all set up on this, this space arc, and they, they head off at double full acceleration speed. Now, I'm going to nitpick on this for a second. How can it be double full acceleration? Either it's full or it's not. So that's just kind of weird. And of course, it's not just me imagining this. This is going to put a strain on the ship, which Matter Eater Lad says, hmm, 
you know, we don't want to blow the engines or whatever, I better tell some boy, and he's like, how dare you question me? Because at this point, he has gone full totalitarian on them and whatnot. I'm in charge, dress me as sir, all that kind of a thing. And the others are just kind of taken aback on this, and we got a really good panel of Light Lass and Starboy, just with that shocked expression and whatnot. They get to the planet Zine, the quakes are getting stronger every hour, because it took a little bit of time, I guess, for the ship to get set up, built, and all of that. I mean, we get references to, you know, soon at the spaceport, and, you know, they're racing against time to get this, and hours later, the countdown for the takeoff begins, etc. So it seemed to be weeks, maybe it's not multiple weeks or whatever, but we've got a shot of the aliens, or the natives, I should say, of this planet. Again, all look alike, the hairstyles, you know, just how far is the the hairline receding is the main difference. They're all lining up and getting on board, and some boy's like, faster, faster. And he's probably not wrong, because they get everybody on board, they take off, planet explodes, as they're not that far. And it's like, don't worry, we'll take you to a better place. We get a fun little scene of Lightlass and Starboy using their gravity powers to make some of the kids float, others super heavy, to keep them entertained, go off the fact their world just blew up. And some boy comes by and just flips out. And again, that's some boy's main purpose in the story is, is just to flip out over everything. Starboy mentions that the Cosmic Boy is like, well, I know this mission's weighing on him, but later he's up at the bridge. He notices that some boy is acting a little odd, but tries to check the course. That scene is doubting Sun Boy. He, get, he relieves Cosmic Boy of being chief navigator and throws him off the bridge. Later, Lightning Lad and Cosmic Boy notice a space rock, which is a, I don't know, flying pterodactyl or some such. And it's like, well, that feeds on dense minerals. There shouldn't be any in this part of space. Cosmic Boy goes back to double-check the charts. And they are completely on a wrong course and going through a very dangerous region of space. Sun Boy catches Cosmic Boy up here. He's got no reason to be there because he's been fired as chief navigator. Insubordination, throw him in the brig. And we get some of the deckhands doing that. He gets in the brig, Lightning Lad and Matter Eater Lad. It's like, yeah, this has gone too far. Cosmic Boy agrees. And Matter Eater Lad chews through the iron bars of the brig. Why they built a brig on a space arc, I don't know. Maybe it was already... I mean, they didn't build the space arc. Clearly, it was available. So standard equipment, I guess, which I guess makes sense. But they get him free. They gather the rest of the Legion. They stage a mutiny. And they basically stop some boy from from getting to the Master Robot Control Board or whatever. They tie him up, but he has powers. He starts generating heat and light to fight them off or whatever. And it's like, stop or you'll damage the ship. And he's like, well, then surrender. And they're getting blinded by the light and the heat and stuff. And they've got no choice but surrender, lest the ship get destroyed. They get put into a space lifeboat and cast adrift. No food, no radio, only a little bit of fuel, and we get, if you think we're done, you're wrong, and if we don't survive, some boy on L will hunt you down, sort of a deal. End of part one. So quite a bit, and a lot of it is a focus on Sun Boy and his descent from he's tired to he's gone mad. And of course, that's the point of the story. We'll, we'll get the summation of it and the conclusion of it in the next part. Overall, it was it was a good story, not brilliant, not horrible, quite a bit happens, 
And I just love the little bits of business like, oh, we've got robots that are this color for this reason, robots that are that color for this reason and such. Clearly establishing that, that a robot workforce exists and that they... It's funny because I don't think the robots ever actually say anything in this part of the story. Matter of fact, I yeah, I'm sure they don't. So they're quiet slave labor, essentially. Clearly intelligent enough to follow orders, but no apparent will of their own that I can tell at this point. I'm kind of curious how the robot level of intelligence gets treated over the lifespan of the Legion mythos, and at what point, like here, they're front and center, and at what point that just kind of drifts to the background, like, yeah, I guess technically they exist, but isn't really focused on. Anyways, I thought this was, again, a a decent story, first part. I'll come back for the second part, and once again, that's The Mutiny of the Legionnaires from Adventure Comics 318. Next up is part two, the Castaway Legionnaires from Adventure Comics 318. And when we left them in the end of part one, we had six Legionnaires, Cosmic Boy, Triplicate Girl, Lightning Lad, Light Lass, Matter Eater Lad, and Starboy cast adrift in a space lifeboat by Sunboy. And we basically pick up right from there. They don't have fuel. They don't have food. They don't, don't have much hope. But Cosmic Boy remembers from the chart he'd looked at that there's a planet, Tunar, but it's, it's too far away. How are they going to get there? But he, he realizes as a meteor goes by that meteors tend to have metallic cores. He uses his super magnetism to kind of hook to it. Lightlass lightens the load of the, the boat, and it's able to kind of tow them along. Now, that gets them to a planet, which goes unnamed. They, they manage to land there using some of their fuel, find some food, but there is no food on the planet. Worse, it's a heavy gravity planet, so Lightlass has to use her powers to negate that effect on the Legionnaires. They look around for a bit, they find nothing, and it's like, well, but how do we get off the planet? And Matter Lad points out that, well, he's not going to starve. He can eat anything like the space rock creatures they'd seen. They realize that's a great plan to trap one of those, which they do. They basically fuse some rocks so they look like diamonds. They get a cable from the space lifeboat, use it as a trap to where when the space rock comes down for the diamonds, they basically lasso one of the the talons and stuff, and it tows them into space. It's a bit of a bumpy ride, and they kind of cut loose as they get near another planet. They get down there, and this one is uninhabited except for giant insects. On this one, Matter Eater Lad actually decides to to eat up a little bit and realizes that these bees have been storing honey. He knows it's not poisonous. I guess he can taste it and tell the difference. And that gives the, the Legionnaires something to eat. The giant space bees do come back, but Starboy uses his powers to make them too heavy to fly temporarily. They find a crashed spaceship on this planet and the it, from, like, long ago. And the two astronauts that were in it had, like, turned to stone from the... How did they phrase this? The petrifying chemical from the spray of a nearby waterfall. Now, they don't seem too worried to be breathing that. But since they realize they're going to try to use parts from that ship, what they do is set the stone bodies of these astronauts up right near the waterfall, figuring... If the water falls fully on the petrified figures, 
still grow in giant size, and this will be a nice tribute to their sacrifice, their heroism, all that kind of a thing. Again, seems like if you're going to do that, you're going to get wet from the petrifying waterfall, and that doesn't seem smart, but that's not a problem. Whatever. They study the old ship, realize it's not quite compatible with theirs, but it's close enough that they could take some of the rockets of the old ship, put them on the uh, spaceboat, use that to fly off. But before they fly off, they do check in on the memorial they created, and sure enough, these astronauts have grown in giant size, you know, like colossal boy type size, if not larger. Matter of fact, I would say possibly 60 feet by this point, so I don't know how long it took them to mount the rockets, but I wouldn't stay near that waterfall for too long. Anyways, they're able to take off, get to Tunar, no problem. They get there, no sign of some boy in the space arc. They're presumed lost in space. The Legion's able to get another space cruiser. They follow the path that the Ark had been on. It seems to be stuck on a giant space vortex. They use Starboy's powers to make them super heavy so they don't get carried away by the space vortex. They hop out in spacesuits and try to go save the Ark. And Lightning Lad is able to save it from a meteor that's about to hit it by blasting it with his lightning powers. Now he's doing this in space in a spacesuit. And previously, when they were in space or wearing spacesuits, they couldn't use their powers. So I think this is getting us closer to the, the transsuit era of later decades, where they need to be able to breathe in space, but they need to use their powers in space. The transsuits also solve the problem of here, if you can't really make out the character from the hair, because everything else is a white spacesuit, you can get around that if you make the spacesuit transparent later, which they do, which simplifies the art, makes the character recognition much easier. Anyways, I, I see where they, they were going with that. I don't know how far into... I know it's something by the 80s, possibly the late 70s, so it's probably still more of a decade out than we're here. But they're, again, incrementing there by letting the, the characters use their powers in the spacesuits. When they get into the arc, Sunboy is there, but he's just zoned out entirely. There was nobody to give orders to the, the robot crew, which is how the ship got stuck in the vortex. They use Cosmic Boy's super magnetism Light Lass's ability to lighten the load of the Ark to get the ship out of the Space Vortex. They get them to the planet they were trying to get the Xenons to. They're very happy, and they're like, okay, we've got to get some boy back to Earth for medical attention. He gets diagnosed of suffering from pressure on the brain from too many missions and became a victim of space fatigue. But it's okay, they can fix this with their scalpel rays, which will remove the pressure. And I'm like, at first, it was sounding like it was a mental pressure of too many space missions. Now, it's sounding like a physical one. They're got, I don't know, drill microscopic holes, relieve the pressure. I don't know. It's, it's weird. And then the last panel is sometime later, they've added an amendment to the Constitution saying, no legionnaire shall go on more than five space missions without a rest period to prevent space fatigue. Some boy's like, hey, you said you'd come back. I'm glad you did. And with this new rule, this can't happen to anyone else. So there's no punishment for some boy. It's just kind of a quick, okay, you know, we've, we've wrapped it up. And I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed here that the whole xenon gas thing didn't factor in a little, you know, because of the space fatigue, he was able to succumb to it or whatever, or Cosmic Boy, you know, can breathe xenon, something like that, because they could have had a nice little callback to the space helmet Cosmic Boy wore 
in his first appearance, and that would have been a nice little touch, but not needed, not a problem. And a decent resolution, a lot of use of Lightlass's powers in this, but she's only had the new gravity nullifying powers for just a issue or two at this point, so it's a good chance for her to really show them off and whatnot, and seems to come use them well naturally, given again she just got them. So, once again, that is The Castaway Legionnaires, which is part two of The Mutiny of the Legionnaires, from Adventure Comics 318. Next up is Adventure Comics number 319 and The Legion's Suicide Squad, part one. Now, there is a part two to this. I'm going to record on the first part, get to the second part later. Once again, Edward Hamilton is writing John Forte on the art. We're in April 1964. It's a total of 18 pages for the story, 9 for the first part with a full-page interior cover. And what's interesting is the interior cover has, like, Colossal Boy fighting this giant robot, and he's not really even in the first part of the story, I think, at all. I don't think we see him anywhere in it, to be honest. So, again, these covers, I think, are based on the, the pitch for the story, not the actual finished version of the story. And again, they chose a moment from, I guess, the second part. Now, this story starts out on the planet Thrun, T-H-R-O-N. They like the double vowels for some reason. Anyways, it's got a single city on this planet that's a single colossal building, and they are isolationists. They have finally finished their force projection things at the top of the building, and this will prevent anyone from coming near their planet ever again. They hate all outsiders. This shuts down a ship that happens to be flying in the vicinity on a, I guess, a transport, you know, shipping mission or something like that. It knocks out their atomic reactors. They're dead in the water. They don't even have enough power to call the science patrol, but the science patrol happened to be nearby, noticed the ship drifting, came to investigate, and it's like, oh, we've got to shut down whatever's causing the thing on land. The ship they send a ship down, and that gets disabled, and their guys just have to parachute out or whatnot. This gets the science police involved, and it's like, okay, we've lost a couple of ships already. Let's call in the Legion. So they call in the Legion saying, hey, this is knocking out space trade in this huge vicinity of, of the planet. Now, space things tend to go in one of two directions in terms of, of the size of space. Either space is big, which Star Trek kind of falls into. It takes a while to get from place to place. Or space is small, like more of a Star Wars thing where you can go jet-setting across the galaxy in an afternoon to multiple planets and stuff. The Legion seems to be going with a, a little bit of both because there's the far reaches of space that they go on missions on and you, you lose contact, whatever. And then there's this thing where one planet with a, I think they phrase, 30 million miles range of their weapon or whatever is shutting down all the space traffic everywhere or something. So they're a little inconsistent on that, but I kind of expect that for the time frame. And they realize this is going to be a dangerous mission, and they decide that only a handful of people can go. Some boy is the one that kind of makes that call. So I'm guessing at this point he is definitely the leader, which given the whole thing in the previous issue with him going nuts from the space fatigue or whatever, still a little surprising, but whatever. So they use the planetary chance machine to select the seven legionnaires, and the first one picked will be the mission leader. Now, I don't know why they're picking 
randomly, but okay, fine. Not everybody sits at the table around this device, so it's not picking everybody. I mean, there are a couple of people that just aren't in the running and stuff. And if I were going to design a random selection machine, and they've used that sort of a thing in like Super Sentai a time or two, where everybody puts their kind of token in this device and the first five that drop out, you know, those are who's picked. With a, a random aspect there. This is a spinning, like, imagine a science fair model of the solar system with the different planets sticking out of a like a dome in the middle representing the sun that's just a foam ball and it's got pegs and other foam balls out there and stuff. Spin it out really fast. Those planets are going to fly off and select people. That's exactly what basically happens here. You know, the first one who gets pinged in the head by a planet flying off the device is Brainiac 5, so he's going to lead it. And then we wind up finding out that the others picked are Saturn Girl, Bouncing Boy, Superboy, Lightning Lad, Chameleon Boy, and Invisible Kid. Now, because it's such a dangerous mission, Brainiac 5 tries to eliminate Saturn Girl, and she's like, yeah, not going to happen. Now, the science police has found two people who've actually been to this planet. One's an archaeologist, the other's an interplanetary trader, just so they have some idea of what they're getting themselves into. But honestly, these two guys are not much help. Now, they get over to that region of space with their plan being, we'll approach the planet from the opposite side as the singular tower, this huge city building that has all, all the people, so maybe they won't detect us. Superboy's like, hey, it's got a yellow sun, why don't I fly ahead and get some information and stuff? And maybe find out where the, the disabled spaceships are, all that kind of a thing. And Brain A5's is like, yep, that makes sense, let's go do it. Superboy flies out, gets down to the planet, starts to investigate, and lo and behold, a ray strikes out from the, the beams or the devices at the top and filters the sun rays from yellow to red. So suddenly Superboy is powerless and crashes down to the ground. And they're like, oh, is he okay? Is he dead? What's going on? He was flying low, so he's okay. Now, the rest of the Legion gets their flight belts on and they're heading out from the other side of the planet trying to stay out of the jungles where there are dangerous creatures and stuff, and we get a token appearance of one trying to, you know, grab at Chameleon Boy or whatnot. Superboy gets up. He knows he still doesn't have powers, but hey, he's a legionnaire. He's got to do the right thing. Goes towards the city, and then this sphere of energy comes careening out of, of one of the doors. It hits him. It's a electrical charge, and it terrible pain. It knocks him out. Now, I was going to say it'd be pretty powerful to do that to Kryptonium, but again, Red Sun, so he's just a normal guy at this point. The rest of the Legion that's on this team makes it over there. They see Superboy. Oh, we've got to do something about it. They radio back to the base saying, hey, Superboy's down, maybe dead, don't know, but we're going to continue on. And they're calling back to the headquarters a lot more than usual, but there's a reason for that, as we'll find out in a minute. And some boy, again, pointing out that he's probably leader. It's like, hey, if Superboy's down, this may be too much for you guys, but go in, good luck. And Brainiac 5's plan is have some of the Legionnaires go be a distraction while he and Lightning Lad try to go take out those devices at the top. Well, that doesn't work too well because more of these electrical things fly out, attack the Legion, and they're pretty much down for the count. Except for Lightning Lad, and since his body is supercharged electrically anyways, these electrical attacks have no impact on him. But the others are down, maybe dying, 
he radios back. And it's funny, it looks like it's a handheld two-way radio or whatever. Now, granted, it's relaying through their space cruiser or whatnot to get back, and they had shown that previously, so they're at least playing fair. With It's not a handheld device that can communicate across the galaxy. But he's like, hey, I'm going to go in. He tries to attack this, this huge building with his lightning powers, but it's shielded for that. A door pops open. He's like, hey, I'm going to go investigate, but it's dark. I can't see anything. Doors clamp shut. Sunboy and the others at the, the headquarters are like, oh, it's a trap. They tried to warn him not to go in. But, you know, it's the Stephen Amell rule of storytelling that bad decisions make for good stories. Good decisions don't. So we end with a couple of Legionnaires at the, the headquarters of Sunboy, Monel, Cosmic Boy, and Shrinking Violet of, it's up to us, we must send another group out, we've got to defeat this menace of Thrun, our space traffic is destroyed, and, you know, it's going to impact everybody everywhere. End of part one. So a lot of this is just setting up the scene, starting with a planet that's crazy isolationist for the time, and even at the beginning, I think we don't see any of the people on this planet because we're we're seeing voices from inside the city, but we never we have no idea what the, the the people on this planet even look like. And the two guys who've been to the planet, they were forced to leave, but there's nothing indicating they know what the people on the planet look like either. So I'm expecting there to be some kind of reveal on why these people are such isolationists or whatever. And I'm gonna guess that Colossal Boy is one of the people who makes it to the next team because that's what we saw on that interior cover. And I'm thinking Element Lad and Phantom Girl and Monel and Shrinking Violet are going to be on that. Well, and Sun Boy. So we pretty much know what the team's going to be. And again, it's funny that that's the interior cover of the first part, even though those characters aren't featured there at all. And the actual cover of the issue has... The first team kind of down, and the next team getting knocked out by a beam from the city and such. And that this is all going to come down to the members of the Suicide Squad of the Legion. And I know this, I don't think, is a group that ever shows up after this story. Because the, the, the main squad I remember of classic Legion time is the Espionage Squad, which is an awesome team. Not a Suicide Squad. And I'd have to do a little research. I may try to do that between now and recording the second part of when the actual Suicide Squad originally showed up in DC continuity, not the villainous group, but the the original version, and to see if this actually predates that, because I think it might, because we're only in 1964 here. Anyways, interesting story, classic kind of a two-parter, end on a cliffhanger, and we've got to resolve it in the next part. So... I'm going to do a little research, a little more reading, and I'll be back with the second part of this. But this was The Legion Suicide Squad Part 1 from Adventure Comics 319. Next up from Adventure Comics number 319 is The Legion Suicide Squad Part 2, The Charge of the Substitute Heroes. Still written by Edmund Hamilton, art by John Forte, another nine pages that's got a two-thirds page interior cover, and it's kind of weird because I, honestly, I think it spoils the story a little bit. It basically reveals who the Suicide Squad is, and Charge of the Substitute Heroes, I think you can guess, because that spoils it too, it's the subs. So this is actually turning out to be a little bit of a sub story, but it's 
funny because the majority of the story focuses on the, the Legion, not the subs. Now, we spend a little time at the beginning of this part resetting the scene of all of space travel is shut down because of those projectors on Thrawn. There's a planet that's suffering a famine because all their food comes from space, because I guess they can't grow it there, whatever, and they don't store any? I don't know, it's, it's weird. And people know that the first team the Legion sent got defeated. Why isn't the Legion doing anything? Well, the Legion's gonna. They basically sit back down at the Planetary Chance Machine, the spinning science fair solar system of questionable stability, since again, it bonks people on the head to pick them. And the first one to get bonked on the head is Starboy, so he's going to lead the next team, which will have Cosmic Boy, Ultra Boy, Triplicate Girl, and Matter Eater Lad. Note the lack of Colossal Boy, so that basically, by the cover and stuff of what we've seen so far, implies there's going to be a third team. They don insulating suits under their costumes to protect against the electrical charges. They do that under the suit, because that way they can still draw the suits and we can tell who's who. They've got a planetographer, which is a real mouthful. Basically, a guy who knows about different planets. So, hey, what do you know about this planet? And he's like, uh, not much. They've always been isolationists. We know they've got the Citadel. We don't even know how many of them there are. So once again, the group's going in blind. This time, they've got a plan. They head towards an uninhabited world where a bunch of meteors have landed. They find one that's the right size, and Matter Eater Lad basically starts chewing away at it, hollows it out, and they use that to get to Thrawn, figuring if we go using this, it won't look like a ship, they won't shoot the ray at it, they'll just think it's a meteor crashing down. Now, Ultra Boy is the one using his powers to fly them there. Now, the last time we've seen this sort of thing done, I forget if it was Superboy, Supergirl, or Monel. It was it was one of them that could use more than one power at a time, so they could use their X-ray vision to see where they're going and such. So, how Ultra Boy is steering this, how he knows when and how to land, I don't know. But they get to the planet. They see the other Legionnaires, you know, that are helpless and stuff. Ultra Boy throws the meteor at the the city, cracking the city wall. The Legion flies forward, gets zapped. But it's not an electric ray this time, it's a freezing ray, so their limbs freeze up and they, they fall. Including Ultra Boy, who didn't switch to invulnerability in time. So, Squad 2, down. Word gets back to the Legion, because I guess they're... Well, I, in this case, they, they were calling for a report, got no report. So... They don't bother with another round of the planetary selection machine because, well, there's only about seven Legionnaires left. They're just all going to go. So, Element Lad, Lightning Last, Sun Boy, Ultra Boy, Phantom Girl, Element Lad, and Colossal Boy all head out. They use a space bubble, which looks a lot like a time bubble, but travels through space, not time, I guess. And Monel flies them to the planet. That way they can get there super fast. And the sabotage ray thing obviously doesn't impact Monel. He puts the, the bubble down so they can other guys can get out, get ready, and he's like, I'm invulnerable, I'm gonna go crack that city wide open. And they shoot some kind of a chemical gas at him, but he's like, Hey, I'm invulnerable. Only to find out, hey, he's not. There was something in that gas that counteracted his antidote to lead poisoning, and then there's a shot of little 
I don't know, buckshot or whatever of, of lead getting shot at him. So he's immediately poisoned by lead. And the others go to help him, but they get hit by the freeze ray and they're down, except for Colossal Boy, who needed a little time to grow to colossal size. And he's using their wrecked ship. I'm trying to think which one that would have been, because this group came in the space bubble. But anyways, he's using that as a shield from the ray and stuff. So that's not working, but they send out a huge robot, and this is essentially the image we got on page six here from the interior cover of part one. Now back on page four, two pages earlier, when the second team gets hit by the freeze ray, or the, yeah, the freeze ray, that's basically the scene that's shown on the cover of the issue. Now we go another page, the subs have been watching all this somehow. It's like, hey, we've got to go help them. It's a suicide mission, or actually, history will call us a suicide squad. But, and of course, these guys are heroes, even though they didn't make it into the real Legion, they've formed their own. They're going to go help, even if it costs them their lives, because that's the kind of people they are. So we get there, they're coming out of their ship. That's the shot on page 7 for the interior cover of uh, part 2. So between pages 4, 6, and 7, that's where they drew the actual cover image the interior cover of part one, and the interior cover of part two. So from a very a specific chunk of the story. So the subs are essentially parachuting in with Night Girl having been uh, sent off in another direction. Polar Boy, Fire Lad, and Chlorophyll Kid start attacking the city. So Polar Boy's freezing it. Fire Lad's trying to burn it. Chlorophyll Kid is surrounding it with... with trees, so I guess the city doesn't go anywhere. I don't know. And Stone Boy has turned himself into stone, so their weapons won't affect him. I think that's like, why is he even here? Why didn't he go with Night Girl? I don't know. But Night Girl, of course, went another way because it's daytime and she has no powers. The giant robot that had fought Colossal Boy and knocked him out has grabbed, it looks like, Polar Boy and Fire Lad and Chlorophyll Kid, I guess, just... No, actually, him, Polar Boy, and Stone Boy. And it's funny, because Stone Boy looks to be stone, but is still talking and able to move, which, a little wrong. Fire Lad and Chlorophyll Kid don't really do a whole lot here. And it's funny, because I think Chlorophyll Kid could have grown a lot of trees for Fire Lad to ignite or something, and maybe that could have done anything. But anyways, it looks like the subs are basically down for the count. But by this point, Night Girl has hit the dark side of the planet. It's nighttime. She now has powers. She burrows through the the planet and comes up in the the city on the other side. Hey, as long as she's not in the sun, she's got powers. And I'm like, man, if they have windows, she's doomed. But not only is the outside coated with lead, but so are the interior walls. So her x-ray vision is blocked and she's not finding anybody. So she's going around. Finally, she gets to the control room and she finds two guys, two old guys. And it's like, you nearly destroyed both legions. And she basically smashes their weapons control computer and such. And it's like, you're not going to be menacing peaceful ships again. And this whole thing was done because they were afraid that if anyone realized they were the last two guys of this race, their planet would be easy pickings. Somebody would just come and take over, which probably not an unreal fear. But Night Girl basically saves the day, gets these two guys to surrender, finds Lightning Lad, 
who, once he went into the, the city, got trapped in a cage, which was grounded so his lightning bolts couldn't get him out. The legions basically destroy the weapons these guys have, leave them in peace, saying, hey, you're not going to be bothered by visitors, don't worry about it. And then we're back at Metropolis, and there's a parade going for the Legion of Substitute Heroes. So they're actually getting the acknowledgement they deserve. So kind of fun to see the subs used this way, and the Legion kind of mentioning that if it wasn't for them, this would have been the Legion's first total defeat, which was kind of cool. So they're getting acknowledged as, as real heroes. I was expecting, again, a twist with who's in this city, and it being two old guys. Kind of interesting. Would have been nice if they'd explain what happened to the rest of them. And honestly, it'd be interesting to find out what happens to this planet after these guys die at some point. Now, granted, we're two or three or four Legion continuities later, so it's not like this planet probably still exists, but still. Oh, and I did do a little research. DC's original Suicide Squad was created in 1959. This story here is from 1964, so the original Suicide Squad predates it. And that was from Brave and the Bold 25, 26, 27, 37, 38, and 39. So it was probably inactive by this point. And then the Bell Rev version of the Suicide Squad with the supervillains and stuff, that doesn't show up until 1987 in Legends number three. So again, that Suicide Squad name for the subs, I don't know is ever used again. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but I doubt it. And it's not actually a Legion of Superheroes sub-team like the Espionage Squad is. So, entertaining story. Uh, kind of interesting to see the, the Legion just kind of get chipped away at and defeated with the subs saving the day. So, once again, that is the Legion Suicide Squad Part 2, The Charge of the Substitute Heroes from Adventure Comics 319. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.